What's going on, guys? Michael here, Energy 360 Podcast by Energy. I'm excited to be bringing you another interview, this time with our friends at Aegis and Matt Marshall, who's the Director of Strategy and Analytics. If you are a Haynes and Boone Energy Tracker fan, you'll know Matt from that. Him and President of Energy, Aaron Banford, were able to sat down and talk all things Aegis, what's currently going on in the oil markets right now, why might now might be a good time to really get in on some hedges, and really just some overall awesome dynamics, guys. This was a great interview. I highly recommend checking out. I'm just going to go ahead and turn it over to Aaron to kick this one off. Well, Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I'm Aaron Vanderford with Entercom, and I'm, I'm pleased to be joined with Matt Marshall, Director of Market Analytics with Aegis. And I, I have my pen ready. Every time I talk to you, I, I tend to pick up my pen and jot notes down because I learn something every time. Uh, but as we kind of jump into this, give us a little bit of background of who Aegis is and, and your role within Aegis, if you would. Sure. Yeah, Aegis is a, is a hedging advisory firm, and uh, we counsel mostly EMPs about how to protect themselves against price volatility. And uh, in the last several years, that's extended to refined products and interest rates, too. So uh, we, uh, we sit between uh, the EMP and the bank or another type of trading counterparty. And we negotiate on their behalf. We keep track of all their trades. We value the trades. Uh, we give them advice on how to tweak those trades as opportunities arise. And then uh, an entire back office system that uh, you know, keeps track of everything and gives them uh, you know, an audit tool. That's great background. So, and I should, I should start off by saying congratulations to you all. Earlier this year, you guys won, I think for the fourth time in a row, uh, what is it? The hedge advisory firm of the year. So congrats on that. We, we, we very much appreciate that. And uh, we're happy to be growing too during this time. And uh, so just the biggest thank you that we could give is to the clients who keep trusting us. So uh, yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, let's dive in here. So, so on the energy markets and, and the clients you guys are working with, let's start with how are companies hedged today, maybe percentage hedged. And, and as we get longer into this cycle, what do companies need to be thinking about as, as some of these hedges that were put on maybe a year, year and a half ago start to roll off? Yeah, that's a really good way of saying this because, you know, over the last, say, six months, the, uh, the price environment has just been really distasteful for a lot of EMPs, I think. And, and, you know, if you're not careful about it, you don't have discipline in it. The, the, um, the trap you can run into is delaying hedges too long to where you're under hedged, you know, uh, as you get closer to, to the time. And uh, that's something that we're starting to see right now. And we're talking with clients to make sure that they don't, they don't do this is like specifically when we look at the calendar year 2022 right now, and by this time in the year in 2020, you would have expected there to be more hedges on for Cal 22. And it's a little bit behind. And so we're working, especially with the clients who need to get up to prescribed levels, either by their bank or for internal for their internal uh, policies that they have in place to get them up there. And so if it's happening among our clients who has Aegis in their face all the time, trying to get them to uh, get up to uh, you know good discipline levels of, protect, of protection, I know it's got to be happening industry wide. And so I think it is a trap and, um, you know, and I would say definitely start, uh, you know, on, on periods of strength and prices, these, uh, EMPs really need to get serious about hedging farther out because, you know, we are expecting that prices could remain weak really until you get into late 2021. And I can explain, you know, details behind that, but, uh, it's, it's very important to make sure you hold discipline right now. 
No, absolutely. And we're starting, we're seeing it a lot, uh, even on the, the audit side of these hedges are really making their, the, the audit partners job a little easier and more comfortable as they go through the going concern and things like that as well. So certainly there's the bank regulations and then all, all the other things that they go along with it. Um, and so I'm sure you guys are working hard at layering those in. So let's dive a little bit into those oil markets and some of the drivers you know, we're sitting here at $40 or just under $40. It's hard for a company to kind of lock in those prices, but how can, can companies look at what's going on in the oil markets and, and potentially where is there some upside uh, for folks on there? Yeah, you know, one something, something we saw in this last week, which is interesting, is that costless collars, uh, and it's a type of, of hedging mechanism where you're buying a put option. So you're buying protection on the downside, kind of like an insurance policy. And then you're selling a call option, which is you're selling away the right to, ha to have access to higher prices and you do them at the same time. And that makes it net costless. So zero cost to the, to the hedger. And one of the things we've noticed about uh, like Cal 22 out there is that in these last you know, week or two weeks, you've had the opportunity to uh, give yourself access to uh, almost $50. And I, and I think that that number, uh, you know, even though it's not a, you know, a whole lot different from upper 40s, it feels a lot better. Uh, and it feels like, hey, I can put on protection where if prices drop down to 35, I'm protected. Yet if prices were to rise close to 50, I would be able to participate in that. That's one thing that is uh, that's been important. And uh, also, like, it's not just that you've been get you can get access to that that price level. It's that the option market has come back in line, kind of mean reverted back to its old ways to where you're not getting penalized for putting on that downside protection anymore, too. So there's some good trends there. Now, closer term, like now through, say, the middle of 2021, those costless callers are a bit punitive or they have been. Um, we're watching them closely every day. But in, in that short period of time, unfortunately, producers are faced with a difficult dilemma, which is, do I want to use swaps to lock in a price right now at what can see, be a, you know, kind of a, a distasteful curve, uh, or should I pay through the nose to get some downside protection? And so we're watching for some daily opportunities to be able to get out of that trap. And as you guys look at, at at those oil markets and and some of the volatility that certainly, you know, we'll take forty dollars any day versus the negative prices we saw earlier this yeah, year. Absolutely. And and one of the things that I think we're seeing is a lot less volatility in that market. Yeah. Uh, what are you guys seeing there, and and does that help uh, producers maybe plan a little bit more? Yeah, uh, it's it, the the volatility. Um, you know, for a while, volatility can work for you or you or against you sometimes, you know, since the beginning of June through really uh, the beginning of September, there prices just kind of steadily marched up. You know, it, it went on this, uh, you know, they, they call it the um, um, well, it's it, it just steadily kind of went up to like the mid, you know, uh, the lower 40s. And it didn't have a lot of variation as it went up. And then it really wasn't until like the last three or four weeks where you saw the big dip. So here's how volatility, like that low volatility is usually a good time to be able to buy downside protection fairly cheap. The way it could work against you is like just what we were talking about before is you kind of get lulled to sleep and you think that, oh, things are going to be okay. Um, the, the, instead of volatility, the thing that just that concerns us right now is more about um, just in the next, let's just call it the next uh, year, this overhang of supply that we built up during the first half of 2020. 
I mean, whenever demand just completely fell away almost instantaneously, and also you had uh, production from OPEC and other places that was it was it was high. It was like at its multi-year highs. Suddenly, the the market was just oversupplied, and you had t- you had these barrels, you know, in the, on the order of multiple millions of barrels per day that just didn't have a home, and they went into storage, and they still sit there. And uh, that presents a problem because as we as demand kind of recovers and just you know in fits and starts, it starts to get better and better and better. You still got all that oil sitting there in storage onshore, and you have sometimes oil building up in storage in tankers offshore. And that just provides this kind of this this headwind or this just this lid on the market where you just can't get it, you you know you can't get a lot of uh, a lot of traction for prices to go higher. And so the reason I say that that's more of a concern to me than let's just say um, uh, volatility is that it's just a limiter in how prices can how how prices can go up. And so that means that the we we believe that the uh, the price skew is to the downside, not to the upside. So let let's explore that OPEC and OPEC plus a little bit more. And, and where are you guys seeing, certainly there's a pace of recovery element to this, but also on the supply side, how is OPEC going to, going to move forward and bringing those barrels back to market? And where does the U S barrel fit into that? That's such a great question. And, and it's, there, there's, there's two big things that I'm just concerned about right now. Number one is demand. And I wish I could remember who said it, but it was basically, uh, and I think it was in a Wall Street Journal article a couple of days ago. It's basically nobody knows how demand is going to recover. I mean, on one side, you've got some, say, large super majors. I won't say their names that are, that are saying that, you know, the demand peaked in 2019. It's never going to get back. OK. And then you have others, uh, you know, very respectable names that are thinking that demand will get back to 2019 levels by the end of 2021. And I really don't know which is going to happen. I don't. If I knew, I would have total clarity about what to, what to do in this market right now. So that's the one thing. And then the other thing is supply. How is supply going to respond to that demand? So um, the, the thing, the rhetoric we've heard out of OPEC recently is that as demand improves, they would generally add supply. So they would match it. Let's just call it barrel for barrel. Uh, now that would aid in uh, keeping volatility low, but it would also keep a price ceiling. It would keep a lid on price. So the question becomes, well, at what point does OPEC not have enough barrels to keep matching, matching that supply? And that's the way we think about it or start matching that demand. And that's the way we think about it. It's like, what is that inflection point? And uh, when we look at just the, the general consensus about demand growth, we think that inflection point happens somewhere in the second half of 2021. That's about where. Now, some things could make that wrong. Here's the things that could make that, that idea wrong. Uh, demand doesn't come back as fast as we think. That could kick that inflection point into 2022. Um, uh, let's just say that you get a different president in the White House next year and they have a softer stance on Iran and some of that Iranian production comes back. That could extend that inflection point to 2022. Um, but we think it happens at some point. Now, when that happens, that's a very important piece for the, for, uh, for the, uh, the U.S. oil producer because the U.S. oil producer has the environment in which to respond to price faster than just about anybody else on the globe outside of OPEC. And that means that at some point we are short barrels. We don't have the supply to cover it. OPEC can't do it anymore. Price needs to go up to encourage more investment. And who benefits? Primarily the Permian Basin in the United States. And that, that makes a whole lot of sense. So we'll, we'll get to, we've been getting some questions on M&A and I'll, I'll circle back to that. But before we do that, uh, let's transition a little bit to the gas markets and what you see in there. And, and you mentioned Permian, you know, the associated gas, the, those, those barrels or, or MCFs getting into pipe. Uh, 
where where do you guys see gas markets here in the next little bit? Yeah, so we feel a lot better about gas markets than we feel about oil markets. And you know, we've been sitting on a bullish outlook for natural gas in 2021 for a while now. And uh, you're seeing some really positive things happen day to day in gas. I mean, uh, you know, your Wednesday this week, I mean, it's, you see gas up 35 cents in the front. But there's been some other really good stuff that's happened, too. Like even when the natural gas price, like when the October contract was down 26 cents on one day, winter was up five cents. And then you had this other weird thing where October prices dropped uh, and November prices, uh, you know, or winter prices, you know, only fell like three cents. So like you've seen this, this percent, this resilience in winter pricing and Cal 21 pricing, despite weakness in the front. And so what I point out to everybody is it seems like the market understands and it's really obvious in the option market that the gas market is really split into two periods. Now it's what happens between now and say the first week in November when you're still trying to put gas in the ground uh, to store it for winter and uh, and are you going to run out of capacity and then what's going to happen this winter and next next summer. We think that even if you get just temperatures like the last five years and the last five years was mild, just temperatures like the last five years, you're going to be like two BCF a day short this winter. And that means that prices need to rise to be able to make some corrections. Number one, the number one correction that needs to happen is you need to sacrifice some power gen demand. You need to stop using some gas. And uh, that implies that gas prices should be even higher than what they are right now. And if it gets cold, you're talking about being three and a half, maybe four BCF a day short gas uh, compared to what the market is expecting. And that's, that's not just a recipe for prices going higher. That's a recipe for scarcity. And that'll be really interesting. We've seen gas markets spike in, in, in the past, but as we think about just even regionally, um, how are you guys seeing basis differentials? And is this a, a positive gas story across all of the markets or is it is it regionally focused? Yeah, that's a great question. You know what's something interesting that's happened in the last several days or last like several weeks is that as Henry Hub prices went up for October and November, you saw the discount, so basis, so like the difference from Henry Hub price, the basis discount in Appalachia go exactly the other way. Hmm. So as, as gas prices went up, Henry Hub gas prices went up, Appalachia basis went down. And that is a good sign that Appalachia is kind of acting like its own market, that production is probably almost too high for gas to be able to exit the region in times of low demand. Uh, and it's also a sign that, hey, that region has got a lot of gas and storage right now, and you're kind of getting close to your limits. And then the last thing it shows you is that even if they uh, if they do have access to other markets nearby, those other markets aren't real, uh, you know, aren't real strong either. They're, they're oversupplied as well. So, yeah, you've seen basis respond pretty uh, violently in Appalachia. Um, and uh, but once you get into winter, I think it's a different story. Now, another one I think I say is the second most popular basis location that we think about is Waha out in West Texas. So Permian Basin. So how is that gas price done? Waha gas prices for next year might be as good as they can get. And, uh, and the reason is, is we, we always look at, at uh, basis pricing or regional gas pricing as a system, you know, because they're all connected by pipeline. You buy at one location, you sell it at another location. And if the price difference between the origin and the destination gets too small, people won't ship gas. And so it's kind of a natural, uh, you know, governor on how price, how high prices can go right now, right now, last next year and the year after for Waha, almost equivalent to what they are in the midcon. And I think they're only, I had to check, but, you know, probably only like 35 cents, you know, lower than Houston ship channel. 
So there's a limit to how high gas prices can go out there. And I think they're almost there. Great opportunity to hedge in those values. That's really interesting. So, and, and obviously natural gas tied very much to, to, you know, being able to put throughput through midstream and all that kind of stuff, as well as weather. So I want to ask a little bit on weather and, and certainly we're in the hurricane season. I hope you guys are staying dry down there in Houston. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the, the things as we think about some of these near-term weather events that, that may affect some near-term pricing or maybe some, some of the options market longer term? Yeah. You know, weather, weather is one of those where you do get some longer dated forecasts, you know, like 30 day and some people in, you know, publishes seasonal ones, which are junk. <laughs> like you just can't use them. I mean, really that that's about as good as I could say about that. Um, you know, some of the things that are on our mind with weather is, and I think the market feels this way too, is the idea of climate drift, you know, which may be a function of climate change, but climate drift, where if you look at the last 10 years of winters, they were just a lot warmer except for maybe two, you know, they were a lot warmer than the 30 year normal that a lot of people reference as your normal temperature, you know, and that's one of those things where I think there's just, there's this uh, persistent pessimism in the natural gas market that all prices can't go up because every time they do, it gets warm or every time they do uh, production grows by three, five BCF a day. Um, I really think that uh, even if you control for that climate drift, um, production's not going to surprise us this winter. Um, and, uh, even a mild winter makes things tight. So, um, the things that can mess you up though, are now between now and about November 15th. Uh, if weather fails in October and turns to where it's just a bearish weather pattern and, uh, you're having to put more gas in storage, here are some places that could get in trouble. Um, Appalachia, the Midwest, uh, and not just because they're full in storage, but because Eastern Canada storage is almost full too. And so uh, there's just in aggregate, there's just too much gas up there. But the sneaky one that's come around this summer has been in the South Central. So let's just call it Texas, Louisiana. Um, the uh, the non-salt storage and the salt storage are really high as well. So really, you've got just everywhere in the eastern two-thirds of the U.S. that's just chock full of storage. And if you do see weather fail, I think you could see a lot of weakness in October and November cash prices. So the last thing on the gas markets, and you mentioned the the Gulf Coast area and 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 I'm thinking of the Haynesville uh, and its proximity to LNG. What? How does LNG in a global gas market uh, play into to your hedging and your thoughts? Yeah, we we have it as a major risk both to the bullish and to the bearish side. Um, you know, a lot of things that that have uh, piled onto the gas market, the global gas market uh, this summer. I'm just concerned that they're going to happen again next year. So this summer, uh, we had, uh, especially let's just talk about Europe for a second. You know, Europe came into the summer uh, with a, an overhang of supply from last year, and uh, they had so much gas that during the summer you saw their prices really fall to try to turn away LNG cargoes. And they did that. And in the U.S. bore the brunt of that because our LNG exports went from like 10 BCF a day to 3 BCF a day and really squashed our market. So what I'm concerned about next year is that you'll have you could have a somewhat of a repeat uh, where if you look at forward prices right now, it says that Europe is priced high enough to attract U.S. cargoes. But, you know, at some point, maybe it's the end of 21, maybe it's 22. You got another Russian pipeline coming into Europe. Um, they're going to have the same type of supply access that they had this summer, next summer. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just concerned that pri- weak prices there would shut off some U.S. LNG flow. Now, for this winter, I don't think it's going to be an issue. 
Uh, I think that, uh, they, that the globe will absorb as much LNG as the U.S. can put out. And we think conservative, sorry about that noise. And I think conservatively, uh, we're going to see seven and a half, eight VCF a day leaving the U.S., kind of 80 percent of capacity. That, that's really interesting. So let's let's shift gears. I think I I mentioned to you uh, ahead of this call that you know Entercom's getting a bunch of inbounds on hey we want to buy PDP assets and this type of stuff. And you shared yeah we've got some some clients that are you know looking at hedge strategies as they look to acquire. We're still looking for the sellers of of these assets. But as you think about the inevitable M and A that's that's going to come here, whether it's later this year or into next year or maybe the following year. Uh, what are some strategies to be thinking about on, on a hedge portfolio to, to, to get an M&A deal done? Yeah. And I have some really good graphical ways to show this. Uh, so if, if anybody wants to, you know, like to take a look at that later for detail, I'd be happy to do it. It might be easier than doing it verbally, but like one of the popular things that happen and, and not necessarily, this is the best thing to do, but one of the popular things that, that happen is add a bunch of swaps on close. All right. So once you got you got you know ink on paper, uh, or however it's done these days, I don't know. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is done. Uh, you you can just immediately uh, add swaps to uh, basically lock in a rate of return, and we we see that pretty often. And uh, if you're going to do that, use an advisor. You got to do that because you're usually talking about a lot of volume that needs to be done all at once, and it can make a big difference. Um, I prefer you use us, but just use it. Right. Uh, another thing you can do is get, get a little bit more clever about how you protect your price. And uh, one of those things that you can do is to use options. Now we want to buy options. We don't want to sell options because we don't want to set ourselves up for an obligation we can't cover. But one of the, so that means don't sell call options like you would as part of a costless caller. You can, but let's just talk about this example for a second. What you want to do is you want to protect yourself against prices, just dropping immediately and ruining your, uh, you know, ruining your, your investment thesis. So what do you do? You buy puts. Okay. So you, you buy put options, you're buying insurance in case prices go low. If something happens and the deal doesn't close, you have no obligations. If the deal closed because prices fell, guess what? Your puts are worth more. You can sell them back. Well, so, so after the fact, let's say that, uh, you know, deal goes through and now you're having to think about, well, how, what, what would I want to do with these put options? You can do a variety of things. If prices have gone up, you can choose to go out and sell a call option, which would be worth more now. And you see, you get more value for it and you can offset some of the cost of that put and you're left with a, with a caller. Okay. So you got protection on the downside and you're capped on the, on the upside. Another thing you can do if prices stay about the same, you can sell a call option at the same strike as the put option that you, that you bought. And it makes a synthetic swap. It, it actually just locks in that, that price for you. So the bottom line there is that it doesn't set you up with an obligation that you can't cover. It's an asset that you own and you can do anything with it. No, and that makes a lot of sense and probably gets a lot of other capital partners comfortable in, in getting a deal done at this point. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to also cover with you is, is Aegis isn't just oil and gas commodities. You guys are, are playing in a number of others, but one of those being interest rates. And so we've seen some of the news come out of the Fed and, and where they're planning on holding rates and where we are there. But we would love to get your comments and thoughts on, on interest rate derivatives as well as um, trends there. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's interesting is that it, for an EMP who is accustomed to hedging uh, gas or hedging oil with swaps or with, uh, with costless collars or with puts, I think what you're going to find is that interest rate hedges are extremely similar 
They're very familiar. They use a slightly different you know, nomenclature for things, but they, they act like you would expect them to act. So that's the number one thing. It's not mysterious at all. Uh, the second thing is that the, the swap rates that you can get out, uh, you know, even out five years are absurdly low right now. Uh, and uh, you, you really should explore. I think what the what, when, uh, you know, looking at the Fed comments from last week, uh, that makes it feel like that the short-term rates are going to stay low forever. Um, uh, I can understand how somebody would feel like there's just not a lot of reason to take action right now. Um, but you know, our, our analysis showed that you're looking at hundreds of thousand dollars per 10 million of, uh, of, of uh, floating rate, rate debt you have if interest rates just rise like halfway up to where they were before COVID. So uh, it, it is a risk. Uh, it's something that be, can be completely mitigated to the extent that you wish, and we're ready to do it. Awesome. Well, Matt, I want to. Uh, my pen has been been writing here, as as uh, I said in the beginning, and so I appreciate your time uh, and your thoughts. And I would encourage any of our audience to reach out to Matt and the team over at Aegis. Uh, man, they they've got their finger on on a lot of different pulses and uh, can certainly help you think through a lot of what are really complex times at this time. Aaron, thank you so much. And it is always a joy to talk to you and your team. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really fun. So thank you for the invitation. Anytime. High level stuff there from Matt and Aaron. We really appreciate Matt and the entire team at Aegis taking the time uh, to work with us. For all things Energy 360 podcast, check out the landing page on the world's greatest website, www.oilandgas360.com, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube, wherever you get your podcast, guys. Until next time, we'll see you then.